This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you're our guest, this is just the third uh, message we've had, so we're still beginning kind of the series and getting it going here. Uh, third message in. I wanted to, uh, we've had a, recommended a couple books that we have right outside here by the cafe um, on our resource shelves, but I want to recommend another one uh, that we have out there as well that's not specifically on 1 Corinthians, but is on the theme that, of, that we're really building on in this book. It's called The Gospel. Uh, it's by Ray Ortland. Uh, how the church portrays the beauty of Christ. And sort of the big idea of the book is that we certainly want to have gospel doctrine. We want to believe the truths of the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and was raised to new life for us. But it is not enough to merely have gospel doctrine. That must work itself out in our lives, and it's meant to work itself out in our community. So we want both gospel doctrine, but we also want the church to have a a gospel culture about it. And so that's what we're really looking at as we do this series together and talk about our life together in the church, is that we are, and we're just hammering this truth in this first chapter, we are wanting to understand what Jesus has done for us and the impact that makes in our lives individually and our lives together. And this book, which is a quick read, uh, but it's profound. As a pastoral team, we read it and went over it, studied it together, and it was just very, very helpful for us. And so we just want to recommend that one to you. So here's, here's what we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians. We've seen that when the gospel uh, grips our hearts, it makes us, first of all, grateful people. And we see that from the very beginning where Paul, uh, his response to the Corinthian church, which is a troubled church, they're an immature church, they're really, really, I mean, there's a lot of scoundrels in this church. They're, they're, they're a messy group of folk. But when Paul looks at them, he first sees them as those who have experienced God's grace, and he thanks God for them. So it makes us thankful. It makes us see one another differently, and it makes us relate together differently. Secondly, it not only makes us grateful, but it makes us unified. They were a divided church, and last week in verses 10 through 17, we saw that they were separate, divided, at odds with one another. They were kind of had, uh, they were separating under leaders and claiming allegiance to certain leaders. And Paul has to come and say, look, uh, our leader is Jesus, and we don't want to gut the the gospel of its power by being divided. We want to be together in Christ as our central uh, point together. And today we're going to look at verses 18 through the end of the chapter 31. And we're going to see, first of all, he makes us grateful. Second of all, the gospel makes us unified. And today we're going to see that the gospel makes us boastful. The gospel makes us boastful, and we're going to see what that means in this passage. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, the Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. 
God, as we look at this scripture this morning, we pray what we just read, that our boast would be in you, that our confidence would be in you, that our security would be in you, that our joy would be in you. And Lord, as we this day celebrate your history uh, among us, at what you have done over the last 11 years, uh, we just say it's all because of you, it's all because of your gospel, and we celebrate and we make our boast, not in any person, uh, not in any organization, not in any institution, not in any building or program, but we say our boast is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as we make that our boast today afresh, we pray that you would speak to us with power. I ask that you'd grant new life to anyone in this room this morning that does not know you. And I pray that for those who know you, you would give us renewed, refreshed uh, life in the gospel today. Speak, O Lord. Spirit of God, speak through your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a passage that surprisingly advocates boasting. But it advocates a kind of boasting that most of us aren't familiar with, uh, that most of us don't practice. It's, it's, a, it's a boasting which means to take pride. Boasting means to take pride in something or someone, to be satisfied, to celebrate something or someone, to speak with great admiration about someone or something. And Paul makes clear here to the Corinthians that we're to boast in Jesus and his cross which is a foolish message for foolish people. In our culture, the message of the gospel is foolish, and those who would invest their lives in following Jesus are foolish. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. This is absolute foolishness in the eyes of the world. But we're to make our boast in Jesus and his cross, that foolish message for foolish people. Now, foolish is in air quotes, obviously, because it's not really foolish, but it appears foolish to those who don't know the Lord. A call to boast. Now, we know something about boasting. We live in Texas, so we're familiar with boasting. We, we live in, I, I've never been anywhere where boasting is more uh, acceptable and a part of the culture than in Texas. We have an unusual state pride. We have an unusual boasting in things that are bigger and better than other places. This week, I received an email from a pastor friend in another state, and he just wanted to send me this article. His city was, I don't know, the third or fourth fastest growing city or something like that in the country, but he thought I might be interested because the article said that Frisco was the fastest growing uh, city in the country, and he just wondered if I knew about that. And um, (laughs) I follow every Frisco entity on social media, so the, the article he sent me, I read an article like that every week. There's an article, best job economy, best place to raise an athlete, fastest growing, uh, now highest price houses uh, in the metroplex of cities over 100,000. So every week it is something new about how great we are. I read that every week, so I just wrote back politely, oh, thank you for sending that along. I'll put it in the pile of articles. <laughs> So we boast in our teams. In Dallas, we boast in our teams when they're no good. We boast in our teams. We boast in our jobs. We boast in our families. This isn't a Texas thing. This is everywhere. We boast in our families. Facebook is a boast-a-thon. It is, it is not reality. It is boasting and things that we take pride in, which isn't all bad to be thankful for our families. But we, we take, it's what we take pride in. It's what we're excited about. But the scripture tells us to boast in something unusual. We are to boast, here's the first point, we're to boast in a foolish message. And the second point will be we boast in a foolish message for foolish people. The Corinthian cultural values were opposed to the gospel. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message that God became man, Jesus Christ, and died on a cross, and that somehow that death affects us for eternity is an insane idea to the culture. It was an insane idea to Paul's culture, and if people are honest, it's an insane idea to our culture as well. It is foolish, but it is only foolish to those who are perishing. I remember in high school, this is one of the first, I don't know why, 
But one of the first verses I memorized, I mean, I, I had, everybody knew John 3.16, I was a church kid. But I remember memorizing for the word of the cross, I memorized it in a different version, so I don't know it in this version, but though it's a little different. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And I have this vivid memory, memory my, high, my senior year of high school, when I had learned that verse, and uh, I was talk. I can remember where I was standing. I was talking to a guy who was very bold about his sin. This high school senior, fellow senior, very bold about his sin. And so I started sharing the gospel. And I haven't had this experience much, but he literally just started laughing in my face. He was just ah laughing, literally in my face, just laughing loudly. It was a bit forced, but he was laughing loudly. And I remember just saying to him, "The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing." And he just, it just st- stopped him for a moment. I- I'm not sure that was the intent of how the verse was to be used. But it is a memory in my life of pulling a verse out of its context to tell a guy, you're perishing and that's why you're laughing at me right now. And it was effective in that moment. He stopped laughing uh, when I told him that from the Bible. But it's not real, that's not really the usage. The point is that the message of the cross doesn't make sense to people, and it doesn't make sense that, that we would devote our lives to that message, and that we devote our lives to that man. We know him to be the God-man, but we would devote our lives to a man who lived in relative obscurity and who was crucified uh, in a shameful way, a shameful death, that of crucifixion. And that we believe in him, there is eternal life and there is purpose and we are restored to the reason we are created in him, in that truth. That is, that, that is a, an idea that is so foreign to those around us. But Paul says that's the truth, that God destroys the wisdom, earthly wisdom. He destroys people's wisdom with this foolishness. Look at verse 20. He gives kind of a roll call. He's saying, this is wise. To the person who is being saved, this is the power of God. It's foolishness to those who don't know Christ, but it's the power of God to those who do. And then he says, where is the one who is wise? Verse 20. Now, he's, he's, what he's doing is that he's picking at their cultural boasts, their cultural idols, their cultural values that were elevated. And the Corinthians, they were Greek. Uh, They were in Greece. So you you think of Greek wisdom, Greek philosophy. They were steeped in philosophy, and they, they celebrated philosophy. And so he's saying, where is the wise person? They loved philosophical worldviews. So they were a thoughtful people, and they they organized life and how they viewed life around some philosophy. Uh, They may have been Epicureans, they may have been Stoics, they may have been Sophists, various ideas, various mindsets that figured out life. But he's saying, where where is the philosopher? Where is the the plan for life? For us, it might be, where is the self-help guru who figured this out? That life is found in a crucified man in the Middle East in A.D. 33-ish. He says, where is the scribe? Scribes were um, experts in the Jewish law. And so he says, where is the expert in the Jewish law who figured out that Jesus is the Messiah? Because he didn't fit their, their expectation. The scribes were opposed to Jesus. So they know the Old Testament law, but which one of them, how did they figure this out? They opposed Jesus. He says, next, where is the debater of this age? The the debater, again, would have been one that they would have appreciated. This is one who is skilled in philosophy, skilled in arguing. And he's saying, which philosophical debater, Corinthians, of all the wisdom gurus your culture tracks and loves, which one of them landed here saying that truth is found in a crucified Messiah. None of them did. The wise, the scribe, the debater, they represent the wisdom of the world. And what did they deliver? Look at verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, if you're not familiar with the scripture, this sounds kind of confusing. Wait a minute. Is it, is it foolish to believe in Jesus? No. He's playing with God's wisdom and human wisdom, and he's contrasting them. And he's saying, look, in your culture, Corinthians, everybody would think that what I'm talking about is foolish. But God is pleased to take foolishness and save people. You can't figure out God on your own. You need the message of the good news for salvation. To know God, you don't look to the wisdom of the world, but to a message that seems foolish because it's through folly, this message of folly, that Paul preached that God saves, it says, those who believe. Now, what he's not saying is that God is opposed Uh, to the faculty of reason. God gave us our faculty of reasoning. He's not saying that human reasoning is not a gift of God. It's what distinguishes the animate from the inanimate. Um, And it distinguishes humans from every other creature is that we have the ability to think, reason. So he's not saying that our reasoning is wrong. He's not saying that our faith is not reasonable because it is very reasonable uh, the, the, the gospel makes sense. It just doesn't make sense to people. I mean, a, a, someone who doesn't believe can understand, could repeat the facts that, oh, you believe Jesus is God. You believe that he died for sins. You believe that believing in him, you receive new life. So an unbeliever could believe that, could pass a test saying, here are the facts of your, your philosophy of life, your gospel. He's not saying it's not, it's not reasonable or it's not understandable. But what he's saying is it is, a, it is an apparently foolish message to those who don't get it. For those whose the Spirit has not opened their eyes and opened their hearts, it's like, who would, who would believe that? Why would I give my life in following this one? People are looking for something else. It's not an attractive message. It's about an apparently weak person dying. It's about, an apparent, it's about a person who really didn't establish much of a following. He gathered crowds, but at the end of it all, there was no one standing with Jesus, except a few ladies watching him, including his mother, be crucified. So it's not an attractive message of power. It's not an attractive message of, uh, that, that makes us feel good about ourselves. It's a message about our sin and our need for a Savior. So he says, people don't, aren't attracted to this. They're looking for something else. For instance, verse 22, Jews demand signs. What does that mean? Well, in the Gospels, we see that when Jesus came, the Jews would ask for him to perform miracles. Prove your Messiahship. Demonstrate that you are who you say you are. Ultimately, he says, well, I'm going to demonstrate it through rising from the dead. D.A. Carson Uh, who wrote a a book about 1 Corinthians called called, uh, The Cross and Christian Ministry, he he said the following about Jews demand signs. Because he he thinks, while that's absolutely a true statement, the implications are a bit broader. Listen to what he says. Thus, the demand for signs becomes the prototype of every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will devote myself to God if... He heals my child. I will follow Jesus if I can maintain my independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will turn from my sin and read the Bible if my marriage gets sorted out to my satisfaction. I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes all doubt. In every case, I am assessing him. He is not assessing me. I am coming to him on his terms. I'm not coming to him on his terms. Rather, I am stipulating terms that he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. Now, that's not to say God doesn't reveal himself. He does through the scriptures, through the preaching of the cross. That's Paul's point. Jews demand signs. It is the idea that God must do something to show me he is real in terms that I stipulate. And Paul says you'll never find him that way. The way God reveals himself is in this message of a man beaten and bloodied and despised, nailed to a cross. That's where God reveals himself. And that's why he says the world doesn't get it. 
Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. What's the difference? Well, the, the idea behind the Greeks seeking wisdom is not necessarily demanding God to do something, but rather demanding God to explain himself. Demanding God to conform to my understanding. God, explain yourself. God, I want to measure you by what is reasonable to me. So I set the standard that God must meet in explaining himself to me. I want to be able to measure God by my pre, uh, predispositions. I want God to scientifically verify and prove his existence to me, to my understanding. So Greeks seeking wisdom are not going to be comfortable with the category of mystery. They're not going to really be comfortable with the category of faith, though their predispositions are faith commitments as well. I want you to prove yourself like this. Well, they're establishing categories of faith as well. I want you to be reasonable to what I believe. Those are categories of faith. But nonetheless, he's not going to answer all of the questions that those who raise them, uh, he's not going to answer all our questions Not all questions will be answered. Here's the thing. God is the creator of all, and he's not obligated to explain himself to the satisfaction of all his creation. However, he does reveal himself through his creation, even even looking at the sky as a revelation that there's a creator God. And he reveals himself specifically through the scripture. And this is Paul's whole point. He reveals himself through the preaching of the cross. That's where he reveals himself. Doesn't mean there's not a place for apologetics. Doesn't mean there's not a place for uh, interacting with philosophy. Doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that there's not a place to be listening and seek to answer questions that can be answered. But it does mean this, that the ultimate demonstration that God provides is the cross and the message of the cross. And Paul says this is foolish because people want God on their terms, and yet God is going to reveal himself on his terms, which is the message of the cross. So again, I'm not saying that we don't seek, if you're an inquirer here, a seeker, we'd be happy to answer whatever questions we have. We can. We'd be happy to talk at length. We'd be happy to read and discuss and be patient with one another, absolutely. But if God's existence is only verifiable by him performing the miracle that I'm requesting, then there is no proof for God for you. And if every question I have philosophically about evil and about anything else must be to my full satisfaction explained to me now before I will believe in this God, then his answer is going to be he endured evil himself on the cross in Jesus Christ and he manifests his love and his glory to us there and that is the place that opens our eyes to belief. It's centered on the gospel. It's centered on the gospel, Paul says. And, and what happens when this message goes forth of the gospel? What, what does he say? There's a couple of responses. Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks wisdom. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. How does that land on everybody? Well, that's a stumbling block for Jews. It's a stumbling block. When we announce Jesus Christ crucified, they fall over that. They stumble over that. Why? Because, according to Old Testament law, it is a curse to die upon a tree. Jesus, his death, appears as a curse to Jews. So how could you worship a cursed person? And Paul says, the New Testament says, absolutely he's cursed. Not because of his sin, but because of ours. He dies and endures the curse that is due to us. But that's a stumbling block to people who don't expect God to do that, to die as a crucified Messiah. That, that is an oxymoron, crucified Messiah. The Messiah is the one who comes to bring deliverance. How can the deliverer die this brutal death? You cannot have a crucified Messiah in the mindset of many Jews. Many Jews believe, have come to faith in Christ, but many do not. And he's also, to the Gentiles, it's folly. He says, to the Jews, it's stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it is folly. 
It's foolishness to speak of God's power through the death of one. That, that doesn't make sense. It's a, it looks like weakness. It looks like failure. It, 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 the message of the cross is not a message of glory. The, mess, the cross wasn't even spoken of in polite company. The cross was, Roman citizens weren't even sentenced to death on a cross because it was so brutal, so dehumanizing as a way to die. It just wasn't even spoken of. It was vile. It was vulgar. It was offensive. And for the Greek who, who celebrated class and status and wisdom, to talk about something that vile as the meaning of life, in essence, well, that is foolish, they would say. So to the Jews, it's stumbling block. To the Greeks, to the Gentiles, rather, it's folly. But to those who, now listen to this, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. So Jew and Gentile incorporates everybody. So the message of the cross comes to everybody, and it's a stumbling block or it's foolish, but to the called, both Jews and Gentiles, so there's this subset of everybody called the called. But to the called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So everybody who hears the gospel, to some it's a stumbling block, to some it's foolish, but there's a subset who say, that's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. That's the glory of God. They respond a different way. The foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. What the world calls strong is the power. I'm sorry. What the world calls weak is the power of God. What the world calls strong is temporary and not lasting. So he, he says, called people hear this differently. The called are those who hear the message, God acts in some way upon them, and they respond to the call, and they call it good news. So Paul says, look, in your culture that he's writing in Corinth, this is not an attractive message. This is not a cutting-edge message. It's not a distinguished message among those who consider themselves wise. It is never going to be a cool message. And that's true in Corinth, and that's true in Frisco, Texas today. You cannot dress up the message of the gospel and make it in and of itself appealing, attractive, and cool. I don't care how many pro athletes say, I thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when they win the Super Bowl. It will never be cool. I don't care how many great musicians come out and say, praise Jesus. It will just never be culturally cool. I don't care how many Christians you get and dress them in fashionable attire and give them cool lingo. Uh, It'll never be a cool message. It'll be foolishness. It'll be a stumbling block, but some people will hear it and be affected by the Spirit of God, and they will say, that is the power and wisdom of God. And that's why Paul's saying, I'm not trusting wisdom. I'm not trusting power. I'm, not tr- I'm trusting this simple message because it changes lives. In, in the foolishness of God, he chooses to, through this message, save people, give them new life, grant them eternal life, give them a purpose in this life, fill their life, come into them by the Spirit of God so that they're joined to Christ Make them a new creation and build them together to display the glory of God through this message that is foolish to the world. It's a foolish message for foolish people. Look at where it segues, verse 26. It segues into, you're the called, but verse 26, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise. See, what's happening is the Corinthians live in this city that's enamored by wisdom, and they're being drawn into it, and it's affecting them. They're evaluating Paul now. We're going to see later. Uh, Paul's not very impressive because he's not like a wisdom guru. He's not very impressive. They're being affected by their culture. They're being affected by so-called wisdom. And Paul is saying, hey, why don't you think back to when you were converted? Not, not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Uh, not many of you were powerful. You're worshiping power. You love power. You love powerful people. You're drawn to power. Look, when God reached you, you weren't powerful. He looks back at them. Not not many of you were of noble birth. Their society was very class conscious. Classes were probably uh, even more segregated than we would be in our culture because you were born into a certain class and it was very difficult to rise above that. Whereas 
uh, generally speaking, and there are difficulties, there are difficulties and barriers in our culture for people to rise in, in, uh, in status, for sure, but probably not as much as there were there. And so being born of noble birth, that was your key to nobility. You couldn't really work your way up very easily. And so he's saying, look, not very many of you were of noble birth. Not many wise, not many powerful. And that's exactly who Jesus is looking for. That's what he says. God chose, verse 27, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Well, let me go ahead before that. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He's saying God delights to, to, to open his truth to weak people people who make themselves weak and see their need for God, or people who are just naturally, physically, spiritually weak, the outside. He loves to do that because he shows his strength to them. God's power is shown in weakness. He he loves to take people that are foolish enough to believe the gospel and make them the wisest that there are because they're investing their life in the only one who is eternal. He says he takes the things that are not and makes them things that are. What's he saying? He's talking about weak people, foolish people, things that aren't. And from there makes it something that it is. Most commentators say a way to translate things that are not and things that are, we could just be saying nobodies and somebodies. God reveals himself to nobodies. People who aren't making a name for themselves, chasing power, chasing wisdom, Chasing wealth, chasing prestige, chasing status, secure in all that. People who will say, I'll take up a cross and follow Jesus. That's the kind of person. A nobody in the eyes of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that every person who becomes a Christian must be destitute. And, but we must be spiritually impoverished for sure. Because to come to Christ is to repent of our own self-sufficiency and our own self-strength, and our own wisdom. It's dying to our own wisdom, saying, I believe you and your way. Die to, to, I die to my, my seeking to reach you my way. I die to having to figure out everything. All I know is that I'm a great sinner. He is a great Savior, and I'm trusting him for my salvation. And so what Paul says is that there's nothing to boast about. Verse 29, if he takes nobodies in essence, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what's different about the gospel. Greek religion, you could boast a lot in your wisdom. You could boast in what you knew. You could boast in what you accomplished. You could boast in your status. But as a Christian, you have nothing to boast about. I I was made a Christian not because of anything I did. I did nothing to accomplish my salvation. It's all based on what he did for me. It's all based, I was dead and he made me alive. I was blind and he made me see. I didn't climb up a ladder. He climbed down the ladder. God became man and died a a brutal death for my sins. There's nothing to boast about. So that just leaves one boast. If there's nothing to boast about in me, there is something to boast about in him. Because, verse 30, he, he became wisdom from God. Jesus is our wisdom. He became righteousness. I couldn't be right with God on my own. But through Jesus' perfect life, credited to me by faith, between, by Jesus' death, I'm declared right with God. He is my sanctification. What does that mean? Holiness. The Bible says, without holiness, no one can see God. You cannot come into God's presence without holiness because you would be destroyed by your sin. But Jesus is our sanctification. He is our holiness. He is the one by which we can come to God, the Father, forgiven. We're welcomed before the Father because of Jesus. Why? Because he's our sanctification. If I have to stand before God based on my sanctification, if I have to be approved by God based on my holiness, I'm hopeless. But if I can be approved by God based on Jesus' holiness, that's a gift. He's our sanctification. He is our redemption. It's language of buying a slave, redeeming. We're bought out of the slavery of sin by the death of Jesus. He's redeemed us. So, So what a religion this is. It's all done for us. 
at great cost, indescribable cost to Jesus. And it's all given us as gift, declared righteous, set apart as holy, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Corinthians, you're boasting, you're chasing the cultural agenda. You're chasing cultural power. You're chasing cultural uh, prestige. You want the respect and the honor of the world. It'll never happen because your message is foolish to the world, and God is choosing foolish people. So boast in Jesus. He's cutting it, cutting through all the idols they're chasing and pointing them to Jesus. So how do we apply that? Well, first of all, boast in Christ by believing in Jesus. Make him your boast. If you're here and you have never believed and trusted Jesus, this passage really puts the good news in a light maybe, maybe you've not heard before. It's saying that you're going to put all your weight on Christ, that he's going to be your whole trust, that to be right with God, you're going to give up your morality. You're going to say, I can't be good enough. You're going to give up trusting in your morality. You say, I can't be good enough to win the approval of a holy God that demands perfection. I can't be perfect, yet that's what God requires. But Jesus was perfect, and Jesus died for all my imperfections if I believe in him. That is good news. That's how you make your boast, your security in Jesus, your hope, your brag, your everything is in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. The message of the cross, the message of the cross is not just good advice. It's not just Jesus was a good example as a martyr. It's not just the pathway for living. You make sacrifices for others like Jesus did, and you'll be a good Christian. That's not what the message of the cross is. The message of the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The the message of the cross is not a message about power. It is the power. It is the power. When the message of Jesus is declared in a sermon or over coffee at a coffee shop or in your living room or wherever it's declared, when the message of the gospel is shared, the good news that you cannot save yourself, salvation is only found in Jesus, there is power there so that the called hear that and they say, well, that's not, I used to think that's foolish. I used to get tripped up and stumble over that, but now I see that's the power of God. That's how I can have new life. That's how everything about me can change. That's how my eternal destiny is changed from hell to heaven. That's how my purpose in this life, that's what I was created for is to know this God. It's power to those who believe. Verse 21, for it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If if our boast or our trust or what we're leaning on is church, not doing really bad stuff, well, I haven't killed anybody, and I'm not stealing, and I'm faithful to my spouse, so I must be okay. Then we're, our boast is us. Our trust is us. But if we renounce that and say, I need a Savior, for I have not lived a perfect life. I have not loved God with all my heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. God calls people through that. And there's some in the room, you may have seen the gospel, maybe you never thought of the crosses, maybe you wouldn't use the word foolish, but it's certainly been unnecessary. It certainly hasn't been your passion. It certainly hasn't been the defining moment of your life, believing in Christ. It certainly doesn't order the direction of your values and what you're living for, the message of the cross. Then the Lord wants you to hear his power, that he calls people to belief through the good news. And today, turn from your sins. Turn from where you are opposing God, living your own way. Turn, for where you, turn from your good deeds as well. Trying to be right with God on your own and turn and make Jesus your boast. That is, I believe in you alone, Jesus, for the forgiveness of my sins. So first of all, we make our boast by believing in him. Secondly, we trust him. We trust him. See, it's easy to trust signs and it's easy to trust wisdom. The Jews demand signs. The Gentiles pursue wisdom. God does give signs. God does miraculous things, by the way, by mercy. 
Wisdom is found in the scripture. God does give wisdom to us for sure. But it's, it's, it's when we are coming to God and we're requiring of God. There's some of us in the room, we believe the message. We've believed the foolish message of the cross and our life has turned. But we're wrestling. Because in our journey, we're now, though we, we started trusting God, now we are needing signs. We are needing, what is it that you are requiring God to do for you? Is there any demand today that you are putting on God when rather you should be submitting yourself to God? Discipleship is Jesus in the garden saying, not my will but yours be done. So is there anything in your life that you are sort of saying, well, if the Lord will do this, then I'll follow him. If the Lord will do this, then I'll turn. If the Lord will do this, then I'll follow him. If the Lord will do this, then I'll reach out and love and serve this person. If they will admit their fault, then I'll restore the relationship. If God will give me this, then I will give to others. If God will, you know, change their posture to me, then I'll be a witness to him. If God will heal this person I love, then I will be joyful. If God will, then I will fill in the blanks. He's God, not us. Taking up our cross means I trust him. I'm, as hard and difficult as it is, I must trust him. And my confidence must be the cross. Paul writes in another book, in the book of Romans, he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him, will he not along with him graciously give us all things? He's saying if, if you have needs in your life, look to the cross. If God met your greatest need, your greatest need was how can I, a sinner, be right before a holy God? If God met your greatest need in Jesus, will he not take care of everything else you need? He will give you all that you need. And the proof is the message of the cross, which is foolishness to the world. But I can have worldly thinking. You can have worldly thinking. And forget that the cross is the basis for our serving him. What is it you are requiring? Now, maybe, not, maybe you're not requiring God to do something for you before you give him your heart and follow him. Maybe he must explain something to you. Now, perhaps there are answers. Maybe you're wrestling with some questions, and there may be answers in the Bible. You ask another Christian, ask someone, ask a, your small group leader, ask a mature friend. Ask one of the pastors, ask somebody who's familiar with the scripture. There might be a book we could give you to read, a Bible study, some scripture we can point you to. So there may be answers for some of your questions. But there is great mystery. And it is the heart of the Greek to have a, or to the Gentile, to have a system that answers everything. Where all of the universe makes sense in a cause and effect sort of a way where everything can be explained in some way and that is just not true biblically. God doesn't answer all our questions. That's the kind of wisdom that Job's friends brought him when he was a righteous man suffering. Well, there's got to be a cause for this. There's got to be an explanation for this. You must have done something. God says, no, you, you don't know the answer. You must trust that God is good even when things are inexplicable to us. And by the way, that is the most glorious worship. When you see someone enduring a trial, when you see someone wrestling with something that does not make sense, how could God let that happen? When you see that person who's, who could fairly say, why is that happening? Worshiping God, trusting God, celebrating the message of the cross, that is the most powerful form of worship I believe there is. It's not when things are going great. It's when we have unanswered questions where God doesn't appear to be on the scene. Where are you? Why aren't you changing my circumstances? It's in that brokenness and that suffering where we say, my Jesus understands for he suffered as I did. He suffered and yet was without sin. He suffered in my place and he is a God who is compassionate for he is familiar with grief. He is familiar with suffering. He is God with us, Emmanuel. Biblical wisdom is God has solved our greatest problem and we must go back there to find new mercy each day, to cultivate gratitude. Remember, I love Paul's point here, just remember where you were when he called you. You were not likely. You naturally would think it's foolish, it's a stumbling block. But where were you? You weren't of noble birth. 
You were a nobody and God showed his love to you. So this this passage calls the unbeliever to boast in Jesus alone, I believe, for salvation. It calls the believer to return to trust in Christ alone because that's our boast. He's our confidence. And lastly, this series is called Together. We're called to boast together. We're called to boast together as a people in Christ. Not arrogantly. See, this creates humility. This boasting here isn't, I'm great, I'm a Christian. There's, there's plenty of that. that. That's offensive. That's not what's being talked about here. Because it says, you have nothing to boast about before the Lord. So it is, I'm in need. This kind of boasting is, I'm needy. I'm weak. I was foolish, left to myself. And God came to me. This, this, this cultivates a deep humility. In a pluralistic society in particular, Christians should be known as the most humble people in the, in the society, because our faith teaches us we brought nothing to the party of our salvation but our sin, which had to be forgiven. We shouldn't be looking down on any other people. We should be humble. We should be humble. But, but, but the Corinthian culture was slipping into the church, and so they were valuing power and wisdom and presentation and style. And so we're subject to the same thing. Our culture is different, but we're subject to the same thing as a church. Think about the world we live in. We live in a culture that values big. I was making jokes about Texas, but that's true. We live in a value that, that values what is big. What is big is successful. How many acres is that new development? How many people are moving in? What's the size of the community? And yet Jesus had very few committed followers when he was alive. Jesus, uh, Paul, he said basically, every, all my closest friends essentially abandoned me. Paul was left alone. And yet wouldn't, wouldn't we say Jesus was successful in his ministry, though it really wasn't big in terms of committed followers? And Paul was successful in his ministry. We're, we are enamored with crowds. We are amazed by crowds. It's the number one question often. I, well, now that we're in this building, people are like, oh, ask me about the building. But before that, when I introduce myself or somebody finds out what I do and ask, almost always the first question, if, if they have any church ideas, well, like how many people go to your church? That, that's always the first question because that defines the level of success of the church because we live in a culture that wants to know how many people are there and God wants to know what are those people like. What are those people like? Do, do they love me? Is the gospel being preached? The, the metrics for fruitfulness are so different in the kingdom. Now, at times, the, there, there is faithfulness and large crowds. I mean, at, at uh, Pentecost, 3,000 got saved that day and had revival. So at times, it's not like faithfulness and size are, have to be opposed to one another. The gospel can be preached and many can come to Christ. But it is the faithfulness of the gospel message lived out among the people representing Jesus that is the metrics of fruitfulness and not how many people gathered in a room somewhere for an event. But our culture says big is better. Our culture says new is better. Boy, our culture right here says new. How new is it? While your house is 10 years old, man, that is a, that is a rel- are there like fossils in your house and stuff? Like it? Wow. 10 years old. Is it like falling down or, I mean, in, in Frisco, if it's older than six months, it's out of date. And in our culture, we live in a culture that's enamored our, in the U.S., enamored by technology. What's the latest? What's the amazing? We want tips and tricks for life. We want techniques. We want, we want uh, technology to make it better. We want a life hack, which very simply is new and amazing and makes everything smooth. And yet our, our message is old. Our message is based on a metaphor of animal sacrifice. It's based on slitting the throat of a lamb and draining its blood to appease a holy God. That's our message, folks. That is not, there's no life hack on that one. That's kind of gross. Yes, it's offensive to the world. 
But it's sweet to us because God became a man and died that death for us. The message of the cross is not new. It is old and it's based on the fulfillment of a system that's very old. And you can't can't make it brand new. Now, we can make it relatable. We can make it, we should make it culturally understandable. We should contextualize so that people say, oh, okay, you're taking something old and making it understandable. Yes, but it's old. Our culture wants something that's slick. We want professional presentation. This is what's going on in Corinthians. They didn't have technology for presentation, but they did have a certain style, and Paul said, that's not me. And yet, our faith is, it's not slick. It is deep. It is substance. It is authentic. It is a call to discipleship, to give up one's life in this message. Our culture values wealth, and that's why the prosperity gospel proliferates in the U.S., Because we have a cultural value of wealth and materialism, and when we bring that into the church and baptize that, which you can't really, but we try, then all of a sudden, if you have enough faith, you will have wealth. God will provide for you. God doesn't have any poor kids. That message won't play outside the U.S. Take that message to, you know, uh, places where there is, nations where there's extreme poverty. So we wealth, and yet we say, no, we, we, we're called to a life of generosity. It's not getting, it's giving, it's sacrificing, it's laying down our lives, it's serving others. It's resources that are a means to an end to bless other people, not us. Our culture boasts in accomplishments, but we boast in the Lord's accomplishment. Our culture boasts in individualism. Be your own person. Who, how are you successful and what have you accomplished and what have you done personally with your life? What's your ambition? What's your life vision? What's your goal? And the New Testament says it's, it's not about me. It's about us together. It's the body of Christ so that if one is honored, we're, we all celebrate. If one weeps, we all weep. We boast not in our individuality. We boast in the body of Christ We boast in what God is doing in us together, which is a great place to wrap this up on our anniversary. Our boast is Jesus and what he has done in us for his glory. It's a countercultural message that builds a countercultural people. And that's what Paul is saying. You preach the cross You trust the message of the cross. You lean totally on the cross. You boast in the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. You boast in him, and that's the power of God. You boast in what the culture offers, and you will drift away from him. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Because the gospel causes us to be grateful, verses 1 through 9. The gospel causes us to be unified, verses 10 through 17. The gospel causes us to boast in Jesus and his work for us in the cross, verses 18 through 31. A message of foolishness to the world, but to those who are being saved, who hear it and receive it by faith, it is the power of God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.